0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
1: Hey, this is Kwame. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Negotiate Anything podcast. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to remind you about this one of a kind training that we have coming up next week. Our most critical negotiations are now happening online, so I want to ask you something. Have you ever been trained specifically on how to negotiate online? And for most of us, the answer is going to be no. We probably had negotiation trainings that touched on it, but we've never received specific training on how to negotiate online. And that's why we've created this virtual training called How to Leverage Technology to Succeed in Your Online Negotiations. And it's all about helping you to create a custom strategy for you and your team that'll help you to get the best deals possible possible in these online negotiations. This is a 2-hour training and it's going to happen on June 4th and we'd love to have you. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Hello and welcome to this week's minisode. In these shorter episodes we're bringing you highlights from our most popular episodes. Also, before we get into the episode, I want to remind you that here at the American Negotiation Institute, we have resources both for you and for your team. Our professional development training programs focus on negotiation, conflict resolution, communication, and leadership. We also customize every single training for the needs of our clients. We also have an online course and one-on-one training if you are looking to improve your skills personally. We love working with podcast listeners, so check out the links in the description if you're interested in learning more. We'd love to work with you. And now, without further ado, let's jump into the interview.
2: Just about everybody has at some time or another gotten a no. You know, you work your way up to have the courage to ask for a raise or to ask to extend a deadline or whatever it is that you're negotiating, and it just doesn't go your way where you feel that rejection and it can be really hard to process that rejection and move forward, especially if it's something where you feel like your reputation was on the line or maybe you know, you're know you taking it more personally than you should. And so when you shift into this idea of compassionate curiosity in the book, and I want to hear how you made the decision to focus on that. I saw the connection because the best way to get through that fear, to get through that rejection, to get through any stumbling block in a negotiation is to approach it with curiosity versus some kind of tactic. And that clearly comes through in the book. So tell us a little bit about, you could have really gone in any direction with the technique that you wanted to focus on for helping people negotiate. How did you make that connection between where you started and using compassionate curiosity?
1: So the framework, I wanted it to be a foundational framework upon which you could build every other negotiation technique. And so when I go into different companies like Fortune 500 companies where I'm talking to people who are negotiating six and seven figure contracts, I start with this framework, even though it is, it seems a little bit simplistic and it is intentionally simplistic. I start with this framework because I want it to be generally applicable. So it's a framework that you could utilize both at work and at home in every single difficult conversation that you have. And then if you want to be more strategic, then you layer on additional high-level tactics on top of it, but you start with compassionate curiosity. And so going back to the simplistic nature of it, it's um, a three-part process. So the first step is acknowledging emotions. The second step is getting curious with compassion. And then the third step is joint problem solving. And the reason that I made it so simple is because I wanted to be a framework that people could think back on and utilize even when they are in their most stressful situations. Because when you're in a difficult conversation and you are starting to get embroiled in emotions, what happens is your body often floods with a stress hormone called cortisol and cortisol clouds your thinking. You can't think as clearly. Also, when your HPA access starts going, which is your stress response again, your adrenaline starts pumping. It inhibits the depth of processing that your prefrontal cortex can achieve. And so that's the logical thinking part of your brain. And so when you need it the most, your brain is performing at its worst. And so I didn't want to give something that was incredibly complex because I knew that you wouldn't be able to access it given your mental state. And so I wanted it to be something that people could instantly remember and say, ah, compassionate curiosity. I know what I need to do. I found my footing and I can figure out where I need to go in this conversation.
2: Tell us a little bit more about this three-step strategy. I love that it's so simple because like you said, you're sitting there, the other person says something you weren't expecting, your stress hormones flood your body and you can't think. So Tell us a little bit more about each of these three steps. You say acknowledge emotion. What does that mean?
1: So when it comes to acknowledging emotion, essentially what you're doing is you're pointing out the elephant in the room. You can tell that there's something going on with the other person and you want to let them know that you see it. And mm. the benefit is it makes them feel as though they are emotionally validated. Because a lot of times the, the worst thing you can do is if somebody's really upset or frustrated or sad or mad, you say something like calm down or relax or it's not that big of a deal, which obviously has the, uh, <laughs> the opposite impact, it inflames them, because what you're doing is you're belittling their emotion. And so when you think about it, psychologically, what's happening is that you're in a conversation now with their amygdala, their amygdala is firing, and it is an emotional response that you're dealing with. And the way to quiet the amygdala is by labeling the emotion. And in order for them to be able to say, okay, yes, correct, that's the right emotion, or no, that's wrong, that's the wrong emotion, they need to start to think logically about it. And the thing is, once you say you pinpoint it, then it has a calming effect because now they don't feel like they need to impress upon you the fact that they feel this way or make you feel the ramifications <laughs> of their emotions. They say, okay, Kwame sees me and he gets it. So here's an example. So in my mediations, a lot of times um, it's a situation where litigation has led to this point where we're about to go to trial, but the judge sent it to us to try to resolve the conflict. And so they might have been in conflict for over a year at this point going back and forth, but they haven't been able to find a resolution. And in so many cases, it's not a substantive barrier that's preventing an agreement. It's an emotional barrier. First, it's both. It's usually a mixture but you can't get to the substance until you get through the emotion and so i would say if i were in your position i would feel frustrated and so sometimes if they're not if they're not willing to open up i'll just guess but i'll personalize it so if they don't want to own it for themselves i'll own it for them and say if I were you, <laughs> I would feel frustrated. And so it has a magical impact because let's say in some situations, they'll, they would say, yes, I'm frustrated and here's why. And then they'll start to share more information because it's almost like a deluge of feelings kind of come forward and they're going to share that thing that was hidden behind the emotion. Or they might say you're wrong, which is still good for me because people hate to be mislabeled. So I went to OSU. So let's say I don't want to talk about My alma mater, for some reason. Which school did you go to? Well, I'm not telling you which school I went to. And then they say, Hey, did you go to Michigan? (laughs) No, (laughs) I went to the Ohio State University. It's like, I might not want to tell you, but I don't want you to mislabel me. That's worse. What happens, and I remember very distinctly in one of my mediations, I I said, I did, did the frustration move, and she said, No, Kwame, I'm not frustrated. I'm angry and I am angry because of X, Y, and Z. And then she just shared the information that she was holding back the entire mediation. And so the emotional barrier is often the first battle that needs to be fought. And you can't even get to the substance unless you address the emotional side.
2: So that's really fascinating. I mean, the science behind it makes so much sense and the acknowledgement that you can't move forward until the other person feels like they've been seen or heard in some way from the emotional side of it it's counterintuitive to those of us who may feel like but this is just a negotiation we're dealing with facts and figures here what you're pointing out is that is so important and often overlooked that we are driven by our emotions So my question is, how does this acknowledge phase, acknowledging the emotion of the other person, what happens with you? Are you addressing anything about your own emotions during those situations?
1: Sometimes I recognize that it's important for me to get vulnerable first in order for them to be willing to share some information. And so you need to have strategic disclosures. You need to be willing to disclose something that doesn't necessarily hurt your position, but triggers reciprocity and makes them feel safer to share, safer sharing that information with you. And then you'll be able to notice that as the conversation goes on, if you acknowledge the emotion and they feel validated, and you don't need to agree with their position, that, that's an important part of it. You can recognize that there is legitimacy and the the way that they feel without succumbing to their position. And that's a key distinction. And so once you acknowledge that emotion, you might start to see the emotional tenor of the conversation going down. And that's when you can shift to the substantive issue. And that's when you shift to step two, which is the compassionate curiosity side of it. I think one of the hidden benefits of the framework is that it helps you with timing because it doesn't make sense to give a logical message to somebody who is operating with the illogical part of their brain.
0: Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets.
1: The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all.
0: Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career.
1: I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion.
0: Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We've all had those situations when we say something that is just factually accurate and the other person rejects it. And we're like, what world are we living in? (laughs) And then you start responding with more facts, more figures, more logic. But what's really happening is that we are now in a situation where we're talking to their internal toddler. It doesn't matter what you say at this point. They're incapable of comprehending it at a high level. And so this helps you to identify when in the conversation you should say what. And if they're in a highly emotional state, all the logic, all the facts, all the figures that you want to bring to the table, it doesn't matter. They're not ready for it. And so you have to work your way through this process in order to get to the substance.
2: I think about that analogy when you think of when someone is in danger and like the moms who can lift a car off their toddler and they get that surge of adrenaline that allows them to do something that requires superhuman strength. And thinking about that's the stage that their brain is in. They may not be lifting a car, but all of that adrenaline is rushing through their brains in that moment. And they're unable to think clearly. If you were to have a conversation with a mom who just lifted a car off her toddler and say, tell me about what you're feeling right now, she's in that completely unable to articulate anything that's logical in that moment. And that's essentially what people are in. That's what I'm reading into what you're saying and what I read in the book. That's the moment that people are in. And you need to know through using compassionate curiosity how to move them out of that stage of highly reactive, my brain can't even think about logic, into the next phase, which is compassionate curiosity.
1: And, and with the compassionate curiosity stage, the reason that I use the word compassionate there is because it helps you to moderate your tone. And so what I do is I, I say, let's not get into a very deep discussion about the definition of compassion. I don't want this to get into semantics here. So just think about somebody who you think is compassionate when you think about a compassionate person, who comes to mind? And what's crazy is the majority of times when I do these at keynote speeches or um, during my workshops, a significant amount of people say Mother Teresa comes to mind. A lot of people say, oh, my grandma, my mother, you know, Gandhi, something like that. Those are the people who come to mind. It's like, okay, great. Whoever that person is, it doesn't matter, but just keep that person in your mind. And then the question becomes, If Mother Teresa were here in this conversation, how would she ask an open-ended question? Mm, And the reason I say that is because we've been in situations where you might have said something where if you just look at the words that were said, it was completely legitimate. Nothing was wrong with what you said. But somebody might say, why are you yelling at me? Or why are you mad? Like I'm not yelling. The decibel levels of my voice have not increased at all. What they're really saying is that you sound like a jerk. <laughs> you sound like a jerk right now. And so let's say, let's go back to the brain. So if you've worked hard to acknowledge the emotions and you have really quieted the amygdala and you've moved on to the substance, if your tone is off, they'll read that as a threat. And if they read it as a threat, it triggers the fight or flight response. And now you're back into the hyper emotional response and and you're backtracking and that's not good. And so you want to make sure that as you're asking these open-ended questions and soliciting the information you need in order to move on to stage three, which is joint problem solving, which is essentially just collaborative negotiation, you need to make sure that you keep them in a productive mindset and you do it by moderating your tone so they feel safe sharing the information with you.
2: That's really fascinating because my husband is always saying that to me, like, why are you so upset? I'm like, I'm not upset. I'm so not upset. So I have to make sure that I'm not coming across as jerk because that's not good. But what it really, what it really brings to light for me is that people hear your tone in completely different ways based on their own experience, the baggage that they're bringing into the room. Maybe this is a high-profile negotiation for them. If they're not successful, they're going to get fired. Their job is on the line. Their promotion's on the line, and therefore they're operating from a different place than you are. They're bringing their own experiences into the room, and you don't necessarily know whether or not your tone is going to be triggering them in some way. So how do you how do you kind of tap into that? How do you know if you're if you're upsetting the other person or if your tone is not aligned with what they find acceptable.
1: A big thing for me would be paying attention to their tone and how they respond, how it changes, and also their body language if you're having an in-person negotiation. And if you're not having an in-person negotiation and you don't have the benefit of body language, let's say you're on the phone, because a lot of times these negotiations happen over the phone now, in those types of situations, you want to pay close attention to their breathing. And Mm -hmm. the breathing tells you a lot about the situation, Are they sighing? Are they breathing heavily? Have it, has it become completely silent? Um, that might Mm -hmm. indicate that their body language has completely stopped. So they're having a freeze response. Cause in your, with the fear responses, it's fight, flight and freeze. Maybe Mm -hmm. they're, they've frozen. It's like, okay, that's a fear response. That might be problematic too. And so you just need to be very mindful and not just listen with your ears, but also with your eyes so you can tell where their, where their head is during the conversation. And then again, if you're in a situation where you might have moved past the emotion and then you ask a question and then you hear some emotion coming back then you just cycle back to stage one. And that's the beauty of the the framework. It's flexible. It's not a rigid framework. Depending on what you are reading in the situation, it's like, oh, emotion, acknowledge the emotion. Emotion gone, compassionate curiosity. Now I have information, joint problem solving. It helps you to know what to say at what time. The timing is a critical element, but it is really a feel thing. You have to be really cognizant of, of what's going on on the other end. Hey, thanks for checking out this episode. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a review and subscribe. That really helps us to build the audience and helps to signal to other people that the content that we're sharing is worth listening to. Thanks again for being a listener. We appreciate you and we'll catch you in the next episode.